men at that men's retreat. It's going to be an amazing, it's going to be an amazing time. Okay, guys, we are starting uh, Daniel. We're going to be doing the first six chapters. They're the historical chapters of Daniel. And uh, it's a very long reading today. We're doing all of chapter one today. So I'm going to let you stay seated and we'll pray when it's done. Daniel chapter one, boom. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and of the nobles, youths in whom was no defect, who were good-looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, and who had ability for serving in the king's court. And he ordered him to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king appointed for them a daily ration from the king's choice food and from the wine which he drank, and appointed that they should be educated three years, at the end of which they were to enter the king's personal service. Now among them... From the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Then the commander of the officials assigned new names to them. And to Daniel he assigned the name Belshazzar, to Hananiah Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah Abednego. But Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank. So he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. Now God granted Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the commander of the officials. And the commander of the officials said to Daniel, I'm afraid of my lord the king who has appointed your food and your drink. For why should he see your faces looking more haggard than the youths who are your own age? Then you would make me forfeit my head to the king. But Daniel said to the overseer, whom the commander of the officials had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days and let us be given some vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance be observed in your presence and the appearance of the youths who are eating the king's choice food and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to him in this matter and tested them for 10 days. At the end of 10 days, their appearance seemed better and they were fatter than all the... That was a good thing in those days. <laughs> they were fatter than all the youths who had been eating the king's choice food. So the overseer continued to withhold their choice food and the wine they were to drink and kept giving them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them knowledge and intelligence in every branch of literature and wisdom. Daniel even understood all kinds of visions and dreams. Then at the end of the days, which the king had specified for presenting them, the commander of the officials presented them before Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and out of all of them, not one was found, like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's personal service. As for every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king consulted them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and conjurers who were in, in all his realm. And Daniel continued until the first year of Cyrus, the king. Would you mind standing with me as we pray? 
Lord, you have a burning, burning message today. Would you help me to not hinder it? Would you help me to give it just the same way you gave it to me with no holding back? Father, in Jesus' name, do something in this place. Do something in each heart that only you could do. Please, God, hide me behind the cross so that we could respond to you this day, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So the title of the message today is Set Apart. And we have to start with an introduction to the whole book of Daniel. Um, Some of you may not need this. I don't know. I'm into apologetics, so I'm, I'm just giving it to you anyway. Three books have been under severe attack in, in the Word of God. Genesis, Revelation, and the third book is the book of Daniel. What happened was modern criticism, this is in the last century, last 150 years, decided that Daniel could not be written when the book itself says it was written. Daniel himself says that he received his revelations in the first year of Belshazzar, which is Nebuchadnezzar's grandson, and the third year of Belshazzar, and in the first year of Darius. This is when he received all the prophetic parts of it, which are at the end, and which would put it in the 6th century B.C. But critical scholars decided uh, it, it can't be. The, the level of prophecy in chapter 11 specifically is so specific as to what the Greek empire did and Alexander the Great and then the generals that came up after him and they decided that this, is, this was written in the second century. This was written after the fact And it was for the purpose of the the Maccabees who had to stand against the Greeks and had to not compromise. And so this was a a story that maybe, maybe there was some truth of it in legend, but it was actually written in the second century after the fact. And, and so that just, and, and so that, and then they've got all these little arguments about why this is the case. And, uh. It's all in the name of modern scholarship. Okay, well, first, we've got internal evidence that it was written much earlier. The book of Ezekiel, which no one's questioned that Ezekiel is very old. uh, God speaks to Ezekiel and says, even if these three men were in the land, because it's about the judgment that is coming, the final judgment on Israel, and He says, even if these three men, Noah, Job, and Daniel, were here, this judgment would still come. Daniel was already known, already a hero in Ezekiel's time. There's internal evidence that Daniel was written when the book says it was. But the big find was in 1948 when they found the Dead Sea Scrolls. Among the Dead Sea Scrolls, and it took them... 30 years to unpack them and reveal what they had found. Here's what they found. There are eight parchments of the book of Daniel that were dated 
to the second century. So when they had originally said this is, it was written in the second century, these parchments, eight parchments in Daniel are found along all the other scriptures dating back to the second century. The Essenes, who are the ones that preserved all of the Dead Sea Scrolls and preserved scripture and have all of the oldest copies of everything were, were preserved by the Essenes and found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Had Daniel saved among all of the other scriptures, this was being treated by the Essenes as scripture. The idea that they would have preserved Daniel if it was written by a contemporary and it was a made-up story to just encourage people is ridiculous. And so anybody that looks at the facts today will recognize, oh my, Daniel is exactly what it is proposed to be. Now there is one other argument people make against Daniel and scripture contradicting itself. Jeremiah 25 uh, Jeremiah tells of the same thing, and he says it's in the fourth year of Jehoiakim that Nebuchadnezzar comes. And, and they're like, well, there's the contradiction. Daniel says it's the third year. Jeremiah says it's the fourth year. Scripture contradicting itself. Both can't be true. It can't both be the fourth year and the third year. Well, actually, it can be. <laughs> Because the Judean way of counting years was called inclusive dating. The Jewish way, you, you counted years inclusively. So the last year of a king's reign, he got credit for that last year. And then the new guy that took over also got credit for the same year. So that year is actually counted twice. It's called inclusive dating. But Babylonian dating was called accessional dating, which the, the last year of your reign belongs to you. And whoever became king does not get credit for that first year. He starts his reign on the new year. That way, every year is only counted once. So by Jewish dating, it is Jehoiakim's fourth year. But Babylonian dating, which it makes perfect sense, as Daniel's raised in the, the culture of Babylon, that he would use Babylonian dating, it is his third year from Babylonian dating which is accessional and fourth, and so it's, it's one and the same year. And so there's the apologetics lesson. It is over. Okay. Why don't we move on to point two? Daniel. God is judge. That's what Daniel means. It's also the theme of the book. God is judge. Do we have that map? If we have that map, I'm going to be so, oh, I love this. I just love this. Okay. God is judge. Is Daniel's name. It is the theme of this whole book. So here's what happened. In the time of Solomon, um, Solomon rebelled against God and God said, because of it, the, the kingdom is going to be split and I'm going to give 10 tribes away and um, two tribes are going to stay with Judah. So 
there was a split in the kingdom after Solomon. So it was Saul, then it was David, then it was Solomon. And after Solomon, there was a split in the kingdom. Israel became the northern kingdom and Judah became the southern kingdom. So there was all the way through the Old Testament after this, we've got track of two kingdoms. There were 18 kings of Israel and every one of them was wicked. And that's, all, that's another message for another day. But God had warned them and warned them and warned them, judgment is coming. So here's what happened. In 722 BC, Assyria up here on top, came down to Israel and took Israel away. The whole northern kingdom, the whole ten tribes, they're referred to as the lost ten tribes, which is not entirely right, but it is partly right because they all went to Assyria and they never returned. They never returned. The people that came back to Samaria, which is the capital of Israel, were, were people from Assyria that Another story. Anyway, God's judgment completely removes Israel, 722 B.C. Okay, next thing that happens, Nineveh, okay, we know Nineveh from from Jonah, the story of Jonah, the time that God showed mercy on Nineveh. God was ready to destroy Nineveh, ready to bring judgment, and uh, Jonah preached, and they repented. And God had mercy. And that, so Nineveh continued to exist for 130 more years. In 612 BC, Babylon went into Assyria and the judgment that didn't come under Jonah, that was again prophesied under Nahum, uh, happened. And Assyria was wiped out. Nineveh was completely destroyed, 612 BC. Okay, now we're going to go to Judah. So Judah's sins were also horrible in God's sight. And God continued to ask them, to command them, to turn back to him, to repent. And at some point, it became too much. Josiah found the book of the law. And he read about what was going to happen because of the commands of God and how they had violated the commands of God. And he, he, he tore his garment and he repented and he trembled at the word of God. And God sent a prophet to Josiah and said, because of your tender heart, because of the way you've responded, it's not going to happen in your lifetime. Judgment's still coming, but not in your lifetime. So he dies at age 39, another story, and his son, Jehoahaz, takes over. Jehoahaz reigns for three months, and the judgment begins. Here's what happens. Pharaoh Necho in Egypt comes in, attacks Judah, and makes, uh, takes Jehoahaz out of leadership and replaces him with Josiah's other son, Jehoiakim, and makes uh, Judah pay tribute to Egypt. So judgment has already started. They are now vassals of Egypt. They are making payments to Egypt. Jehoiakim is the guy that they have placed in. Judgment has already started. And now in the third 
year. The Bible says, the third year of Jehoiakim, who was placed there by Egypt, it's 605 BC, Nebuchadnezzar attacks the city and takes some of the vessels from the temple and some of the young men from the king's household. And it says that the Lord delivered Jehoiakim into his hands. So God's judgment is coming. It is partial judgment. This is the first siege, 605 BC, and and Jeremiah is prophesying to those that are still there, repent, repent. God is calling for repentance. They don't repent. Eight years go by, 597. A second siege of Jerusalem happens. This time, 10,000 more Jews are taken, including Ezekiel. And now we've got Jeremiah prophesying from Jerusalem, and we have Ezekiel prophesying from Babylon. Repent, repent. God is withholding full judgment. He is withholding his full judgment. He doesn't want to send full judgment. But there are all these lies being propagated. Jeremiah 29, verse 11. Every senior in high school knows this verse because this is the favorite verse at at graduations. God says, I know the plans that I have for you. Plans not to harm you or destroy you, but plans to give you a future and a hope. Well, it's written to these exiles that are in Babylon because all of these Uh, prophets are falsely prophesying to them, saying this isn't the Lord's discipline. We're not going to be in Babylon. Israel's still going to win. Judah's still going to win. The king's going to come and rescue us. And, and, And Jeremiah says, no, that is not true. This is the discipline of God. And you're going to be here for 70 years. Accept the discipline. Build houses. Marry. Pray for this city. God's blessing can still be experienced even in this time of discipline. And then in verse 13, you will find me if you search for me with all your heart. This is, this, this is why the judgment came originally. Under Josiah, there was a seeming revival, but God said it's not real. It's people are doing it with their garments, but they're not rending their hearts. They are, they are being more religious, but they're not in. They're not really in. They're not really seeking me. And so God's discipline is about relationship. It's about, come on, seek me. I love you. I'm good. I'm a merciful God. Accept your discipline and respond to it by seeking me with all your heart. Stop playing church and start seeking me. Seek me for real. Seek me in honesty. Stop holding back. God is judge. So Alice and I went to Missouri last week on vacation. It was just the two of us. Someone generously gave us their timeshare for for five days, and we went down there. We just had such a great time. They had a free, a free mini golf course. (laughs) 
does it get any better? We, put, we played at least three rounds a day. And I kept a tally of the whole week. And I mean, it was just so fun. I, I'm, a, I'm a big mini golf. Well, one of the days we met this couple, this African-American couple named Billy and Eunice. Turns out he's a pastor in Kentucky, non-denominational church, seeking God for revival. These two are... They were just so precious. I mean, right from the beginning, I'm just like, I love these people. These are people without any guile at all. They are just all in for Jesus. And so we set up breakfast with them and we got together and we just asked, could we, could we we just like to hear your story. So Eunice tells her story. And she tells us about this definitive experience she had when she was a little girl. Her and her siblings, it was Sunday morning, her and her siblings were allowed to go swim in the lake before church. But mom said, you need to be back. You need to be back for church. We don't miss church. Well, the kids got together and decided... We're going we're gonna to just say we lost track of time and we're just going to keep swimming and we'll come back later. Well, they didn't know how to swim. And Eunice's brother went out on this raft and somehow fell off of it and was drowning. And a guy came out of nowhere, swam out and rescued him. And brought him in. And she, she's got tears in her eyes as she's telling the story. And she said, we all knew if we had been doing what we were supposed to be doing, that that never would have happened. And that God had reached down in mercy and saved him. And this, why did she tell that story? Because it marked her. It marked her life. The fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord. God is judge. God owes us nothing. But even in his judgment, he is merciful. So today, there is nothing surer than this. That you have a judge. God has appointed Jesus as your judge. The one who died for you, he has appointed his judge. The Bible says he's furnished proof to us all that Jesus is our judge by raising him from the dead. Jesus is worthy to be our judge. Here's the mercy of God, folks. Please, please hear. Habakkuk says, in wrath, remember mercy. In your holiness, remember mercy. Let me, let me explain to you very briefly God's mercy in the midst of his holiness. God has left it to human beings. Every single one of you will decide. You're all, everybody's going to be judged. You don't get to decide that. It is appointed unto man once to die and after that the judgment. No one gets to decide whether they're going to be judged. You will be judged. But God has left it in your hands to decide what you are going to be judged for. 
You get to decide that. You can be judged for your sins. It would be tragic if you were judged for your sins. To be judged for your sins would mean you'd have to reject God's mercy that he's offered in Christ. God has already judged sin on the cross 2,000 years ago. He's poured out his wrath on it. Jesus shed blood for the forgiveness of our sins so that in Christ he could show forth his mercy to the human race. Jesus said, whoever hears my message and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not come into judgment. He's speaking about a judgment for sin. There is no judgment for sin on those who are in Christ. That is the mercy of God to the human race. It is available in Christ. If you choose to reject Christ, if you choose to resist Christ, if you choose to cling to your own righteousness and I'll take my chances, friend, you have no chance. All of us have sinned. And you, you will pay for your sins because you refuse to take the payment God made on your behalf. He is God. He is the judge. He sets up the terms of his own mercy. You don't get to decide how God has mercy. This is how he has mercy. Now all of us will be judged for our works. If you choose point two, if you, if you take Christ's sacrifice, 1 Corinthians 3 says, we're all going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And our works after we became Christians are all going to be tested by fire. And whatever is left after that fire burns, whatever was pure, whatever we did for God, whatever we really did in obedience to God, not for man, not to please other people, not to get ahead, not to impress somebody, but to, to please God, everything that's left will be our reward. It is, it is a judgment for works to determine our reward. And every reward God gives will be eternal. It will last forever. This is why Paul said, don't, don't go after the temporal things. Don't go after the sm- Those are small pickings. Live for Jesus. There's no work done for Jesus that is in vain. There's no gift given in Jesus' name. There's nothing you do for Christ in this life that is in vain. God is going to judge each of us according to our works to determine our reward. God is judge. Point two. Point three. Spiritual warfare. Verse two. Here's, here's what Nebuchadnezzar is basically saying. He takes these vessels out of the temple of God and he puts them in the temple of his God. Here's what he's saying. My God's conquered your God. My religion has conquered your religion. I'm bigger than you. Your God is weak. Your God uh, couldn't stop my powerful hand. The scripture says it very differently. It says the Lord delivered Jehoiakim to Nebuchadnezzar's hand. But this is the intimidation of darkness. It's called spiritual Warfare. In two weeks, three weeks, Joe and I are going to Uganda for 10 days. We've been invited by our missionaries in Uganda to do two back to back conferences 
on spiritual warfare for the Ugandan pastors. So it's two pastors conferences on the topic of spiritual warfare. We're going we're gonna to obviously be asking for prayer for that. And that we'll talk about that more some other time. There's two ways to go wrong in spiritual warfare. Oftentimes in Africa, we had one of our missionaries, Steve Rasmussen, is writing a whole dissertation on witchcraft in Africa because in Africa, the spirit world is so real, it's easy to empower it by fearing it and focusing on it. And they've got, in Tanzania right now, they've got the Salem witch trials going on. They're talking to demons. Um, They're having demons name themselves and then who sent you and then killing the person that was sent. I mean, it's Horrible. The, the, the suspicion, uh, the, it's, it's tricks. They're tricks of the enemy. Um, one famous philosopher said this, there's two ways to be fooled. One is to believe things that aren't true. The other is to refuse to believe that which is true. Okay? In Africa, a lot of times, they're believing a lot of stuff that's not true. They're believing superstition, they're believing fear, and the enemy is empowering darkness by getting them to focus on darkness. In America, it's just the opposite. In America, oftentimes, we refuse to believe that which is true. And because of that, you're never going to win when you refuse to believe what's true. Here's what's true. You say, well, Pastor John, how do you know it's true? Because Jesus said it. (laughs) Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus was God. So Jesus' worldview is the right worldview. It's It's not what modern intellect says. It's what Jesus says. This is how the world works. Here's what Jesus said. There is a spiritual war going on. There are demons. There is a kingdom of darkness. And you need to stand against it. There is an alternate Reality. You are not fighting against flesh and blood. You are, we are not fighting against Russia and Iran. And, and w- there is darkness operating. And if you only engage with human beings, you're missing the real war. There is a demonic attack on us. And if you don't recognize it, you're going to lose. So let's look at how darkness moves. What the agenda of this spiritual warfare is. So here's what happens. Nebuchadnezzar comes in. He takes the temples of uh, the vessels of their God and puts it in the temple of his God. My God has beat your God. He's mocking God. And then he renames each one of these young men. Now here's the significance of that. Their original names, every one of them has God's name in their very, and, and, and for them, names, names were, showed you had dominion over something. Names described the character of those that were named that. So we have Daniel. El is the, is the name of God. It's the name of God Almighty. We already talked about it. God is judge. Hananiah. Yah is the name for Jehovah. It is, it is the Lord. It means, Hananiah means the Lord is gracious. Mishael. We got El in there. God is strong. And then Azariah. Azariah, we got Yah again. And it means the Lord is my 
helper. Their very identity is being trying to be stripped by them. They are saying, we have conquered you. We have the right to rename you. And each one of the new names has the name of a Babylonian god in it. We're not going to go into all that. But this, this is the plan of darkness. Well, I thought Satan just tried to get me to sin. No, 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 no. Yeah, he does want to try to tempt you, but it's not about you sinning. It's about your identity. He wants to rename you. He wants to take you and rename you. He, Satan wants to make you not just afraid. He wants to get your identity in fear. I am fearful. I'm an anxious person. Uh, this is just who I am. This is part of who I am. He doesn't want you to just commit an act of lust. He wants you to take on this identity of pervert. And he will come and he will try to get you to embrace this identity of lust. He, he wants to come and not just have you... Uh, have a bad day. He wants to write depression on your identity. He wants to, he wants to name you. He wants to name you. Folks, we've got so much spiritual warfare going on with our children right now. They, we, kids don't even know if they're a boy or a girl. Madison West last year for homecoming did not have a king and a queen because they weren't sure which sex they were. So they just said that would, be, that would be offensive to have a king and a queen because nobody knows if they're a boy or a girl. Do you see what's going on in our culture? The devil is trying to confuse identity. He's trying to, he wants, he wants to own you. Now here's what often happens. The Bible says if anybody's, uh, uh, 2 Corinthians 517, if anybody's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. Here's what happens. You've sinned, you've sinned greatly, you've opened doors for hell, and now you've repented, and now you belong to Jesus. And so God is, loves you, God's favor is on you, got, you've got a new identity. But there's the devil saying, no, that's not true, I still own you. Fear still owns you. Lust still owns you. Depression still owns you. And you start listening to that loud voice. 1 Peter 5, 8. Peter's writing to Christians. He says the devil goes about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He, he, he yells. He yells in your ear. This is who you are. I still own you. You you could do all the religion you want to, but you're not really a Christian. If you were really a Christian, you wouldn't even have these thoughts. You wouldn't even have these desires. If you were really a Christian, da 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 Guys, it's accusation. It's about your identity. He wants you to give in to discouragement and say, yeah, I guess I am. I, I, I guess I'm not really a Christian. Jesus has named us, guys. He's put his name right in our name. Hallowed be your name. He's put the name of Jesus on us. Saved. Favored sons and daughters. But there is a war going on. And if you don't realize it, what happens is, is you, you, you can't win. 
The big one in America is pride. Independence, I'm my own man. Do you know why it says that rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft? They both do the exact same thing. They open you up to the devil and they tell you this. You are powerful. You are, you change the world. You've got power over this and power, 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 power. Guys, power is an illusion. Only God is powerful. If God took away our breath, everyone in this place would die right now. The idea that we're making, we're going to do this, we're going to do that, we're going to get over yourself. It's it's simply not true. But the devil fuels it. it. The first lie is the same lie. What was the first lie? God, God, God is afraid you're going to become like him. You can be God. Don't eat of the tree of life that says I'm dependent on God. Eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the tree of independence from God, where you decide you, your judge, not God. And it's fueled by the enemy. Of course, when it's called witchcraft, at least we have some understanding spirits are involved. When it's just pure rebellion, it's hard to see that it's also witchcraft. It's also demonic. Point four, set yourself apart for God. Daniel 1.8. But Daniel, this is King James Version. I love the King James in this. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's meat nor with the wine which he drank. The NIV Daniel made up his mind. The NAS, Daniel resolved to not defile himself. So here's what's going on. It's not a Christian culture anymore. When they were in Israel, everybody was religious. Now they're in a completely secular culture. And among the captives... That means most of the captives just said, well, this is how you get along in this culture. You, you drink the king's wine, and even though that wine and food was offered to idols, it was all based on idolatry. They're just like, this is how you get along. We don't want to make any waves. Clearly, his gods beat our God anyway, so let's get along. Let's get along in the new society and just compromise. And that's what happened with most, most of the Jewish youths. And I will say this. It's also happened with most of the church today. I'm not saying that critically or in judgment. This is just pure statistics. That most of the church today in America, those who call themselves Christians, are indistinguishable from the world. They're just getting along. This is how the world does it, so this is how we do it. Because we want to get along. We don't want to make any waves. And I'll tell you what we need in this hour. We need somebody to purpose in their heart. We need somebody that's willing to go against the grain. We need somebody that chooses, chooses to be godly in an ungodly culture. Daniel purposed whatever the world does. I'm not going to do. Let me, let me read to you Psalm chapter four, two and three, which is actually where, oh my, do I not have verse two? Okay, that's my, that's my bad. I've only got three listed here. Next service, let's try to have two and three. Uh, but let's have three at least, though. I need help. If we can have three, yeah, there we go. 
Psalm 4, verse 3. See how we got a little tension going here? It's good. It's all good. I'm just going to tell you what verse 2 says. God's speaking to his own people. How long are you going to love delusions? How long are you going to give yourself to those things that do not really satisfy? But know this, know this. The Lord has set apart the godly man for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. The Lord sets apart those who first have chosen to be godly. Those who have chosen to be godly. When God is speaking to Ezekiel, he gives three examples of, the, of godliness. One is Noah, the other is Job, and the third is Daniel. These are three men. This is, this is what godliness looks like. That in the midst of tremendous trouble, in the midst of tremendous Darkness in the midst of very difficult times where it would be easy to abandon God, all three of them said, no, I'm standing for God. I am standing for God. Whatever the world's doing, I know it's not popular to serve God right now. Um, God's doing stuff we don't understand, but I am in. I am, I am, even though my dream for myself, do you think Daniel's prayer and dream growing up was that he'd have to go into captivity, be stripped away from his family, stripped away from his home, be in this strange culture? Nothing is going according to plan. It would be easy. God clearly has abandoned me, so I'm going to abandon him. Daniel says, no. Job said, no. Noah said, no. He is God. He is my prize. He is my value. I delight myself in the Lord, even if my life isn't going the way I thought it would, the way I wanted it to, the way I prayed it would. I choose to make God my delight. That is godliness. That is the definition of godliness. I choose to live my life near to God and I choose to be unoffended. Jesus said, blessed is he who's not offended with me. I choose to be unoffended when things don't go the way I want to because God is my prize. He still loves me. He's still for me and I'm staying with God. So here's what happened yesterday morning. We had a men's breakfast, and Dave Gary, Dave gave me permission to share this story. I texted him at 7 a.m. this morning. I'm sure he appreciated that. <laughs> I said, I'd like to retell the first story you told. Dave owns the Princeton clubs, the west side, the east side, all those express clubs. Huge business guy who happens to also burn in his heart for Jesus Christ. So he got to tell, he, we got to hear the, his stories yesterday. And he told the story of when he first started in business. He said it was my first real job. He was working in a health club and he was promoted to be the manager. They were going to give him the keys. He was going to be in charge of this health club. And they had this special banquet that they were honoring the employees and they were announcing his promotion. And they're about to bring him up to give him this. And he's going to have to give a speech and God speaks to him. 
and says, put me first. And Dave is like, I rebuke you, devil. (laughs) There's no way that could be God. We are not in church. I put you first by going to church on Sunday. We're at a business meeting. It would be so inappropriate to talk about God. To do, And so the guy's up there doing his thing, and it comes again, stronger. Put me first. He, he's like, what would that even mean? What, what would that even look like? He's walking. He gets in the house. He's walking up. It comes a third time. Put me first. So here's how he starts his career. Gets the microphone and he says, you know, before I say what I'm going to say, could we just put God first and have a prayer together? And he says the Our Father. And, and he said there were a few ladies up front that just started joining him. He could hear people smirking in the back. But he said, I got done with that speech. I got off that platform and inside was the joy of heaven. You know what Dave's word was to our, all of our men? Is we've got to take God out of the church, guys. We've got to put him first everywhere. We've got to bring the kingdom everywhere. We've got to give Jesus his rightful place everywhere. We have to be unashamed. We have to purpose in our heart that we're not going to hide in church and be ashamed of who Jesus is and who we are in him. Folks, folks, I'll tell you right now, any other type of Christianity is going to end up eating the king's food and drinking the king's wine. You say, well, what is that food and wine? What was that? In the Old Testament, of course, the word of God forbid all of these foods. It was all about ceremonial foods. You couldn't just eat any food. You couldn't just drink any wine. And especially if it was offered in idolatry. Daniel, it, it, would, it would be dishonoring to the express word of God. And he took a stand on what the word of God said as he understood it. Do you know what the Bible says about this? Oh, let me, let, let's go to the last point. This is too good. Let's go, let's, let's, esteeming God's word. You got it there. This is the one that gets me excited. This is point five. Set apart by God. Daniel 9.23 says this. Daniel, you are highly esteemed in heaven's eyes. How do you get highly esteemed by heaven? I thought God wasn't partial. Why? Why would, why would he be highly valued or esteemed by heaven? Well, God tells us he, everybody can be. He tells us who he esteems. Isaiah 66, 2. This is the one I look to, the one who is humble and contrite of heart, who trembles at my word. In Daniel 9, he literally is trembling at the word of God. Jeremiah has said 70 years, and then, Israel, and, and then the deliverance is coming. The 70 years are up. It's the first year of Darius. And Daniel, because of the word of the Lord, is 
praying and asking God, God, your word says this, your word says this, fulfill it. And the angel comes and says, the first day you prayed, you were heard because you're highly esteemed by heaven. Listen to this again. Know this. Know this with confidence. God sets apart for himself the godly one. First, we choose godliness. First, we choose that we're going to be godly. And then God responds because the Holy Spirit invites us first. So we respond to God by saying, I want to be godly. I want to be godly. And then God responds to our response. And he says, okay, because you've chosen to do that, because you've chosen to be godly, because you've chosen to take a stand, because you've chosen to be unashamed, I choose to set you apart for myself. And when you pray, he says, David says, and when I pray, God hears. I'm bringing a special connection. And so God sees Daniel and his friends take this stand. And he says to the angel, Let's get some oil out. Well, what kind? Everything. Just pour it out. Give them revelation. Make them. Why don't we make them 10 times better than all their teachers? I want them to shine while they're doing this 10-day thing. Make them look better than everybody else. Make them shine. I want the whole world to know that my spirit is on this one. That I am pleased. He He has set himself apart. Now I'm setting apart. And the world is going to see what I can do through a human being. Folks, this is what we need today. Listen to 2 Chronicles 16, 7. The eyes of the Lord are looking all over the earth to find a heart that is completely his so that he can show himself strong in and through them. Saul was a religious guy, played church, kept disobeying God. Finally, God said to Samuel, go tell Saul this. 1 Samuel 13, verse 16. I'm always worried about that screen because it might be a different verse. 14. Did I say 16? I meant 14. (laughs) God says this. I am removing your spot and I'm replacing you. Here's who I found. Somebody that is after my own heart, somebody that is chasing after me, somebody that is chosen to be godly. I have seen their godliness in private. I have seen him worshiping while he's shepherding these sheep. I have seen him in all the disappointments of life, choosing me, valuing me, treasuring me. I, I have chosen him. I'm setting him apart for myself. Then we have three chapters later in chapter 16. Finally, we're in the household Finally, God's got David before him. And it says this, Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that time forward. David set himself apart and he caught the eye of God. 
He caught the eye of God. He heard those whispers of the Holy Spirit to the whole human race and said, yeah, I want God. Yeah, I, want, I choose God. Not, I'm not just going to be a shepherd. I'm going to be God's guy being a shepherd. And God said, I saw it. I saw his response. I saw his choice to be godly. Now I'm responding to his choice and I'm going to pour my spirit on him mightily. So I got a call this morning, 8 a.m. We pray in the office at 8 a.m. And uh, I look at it, whatever, it's Derek. Derek and Joe are with our young people. They're with 200 young people at the Kalahari. Having a retreat. It's called I Must with Ed Ainsworth. Ed Ainsworth, we had him here a few years ago. Here, here's, what, here's what Derek said. He said, I had to call. We got one more service at nine o'clock. He said, God has fallen on this retreat. These kids, these kids are responding to God and God is responding to their response. He's setting apart, guys. In our day, in our, the hour we live, God is wanting to pour his spirit out. He's wanting to show himself in this secular culture that oftentimes has a little religion, but not enough to make any difference in anybody's life. It's certainly not going to purpose to be different. And so here's what I believe, and here's how we're ending today. The worship team, I'm sorry I went so long. Darn it. Wanted to be done earlier so we'd have time. All right, can we have every head bowed, every eye closed? If you are here today and you're unsure of your salvation, you're unsure if you died, you'd go to heaven, but you are sure that God is your judge. And today you want a judgment, not of your sins, but only of your works for reward. If you want to, as John the Baptist said, flee the wrath to come by accepting the sacrifice that was made on your behalf. The Bible says that Jesus stands at the door, knocks. He is the one knocking. And he says, if anyone opens the door, I will come in and save them. It is God's purpose for you to save you. You are supposed to wear his name. And if that is you today and you, the, the, your door is being knocked on and you, you want to open the door, would you just raise your hand right now high enough and long enough for me to see it? We're going to pray that prayer. Okay. Okay, here's the second call. You are here today and you're a Christian. And today God's asking you to set yourself apart. He's asking you to go against the grain. He's asking you instead of to fit in with everybody, he's saying, I want you to put me first. Lord, I don't know what that looks like. You don't have to know what that looks like to put him first. You want to be godly. You want to purpose in your heart to be godly. Here's what I want you to do. And it, it would be totally illegal for you to look around to see what anybody else is doing. Because this isn't about anybody else. This is about you and God. If you want to set yourself apart to be godly, I want you to stand to your feet right now.
want you to open your arms like this if you're standing. Lord, we know from Scripture that your eyes are looking, searching, looking into churches, looking into hearts. Right now it's Sunday morning. People all over this land are meeting for church. Jesus, we don't want to be half-hearted. We don't want to be religious. And really, we're just doing our own thing, living just like every other American. Jesus, we, you see this response today. We're, we're saying, Holy Spirit, we want to be godly. We want to be godly. We don't want to live in the confusion of this world and all of the identities, the false identities that are being put on people and oftentimes on us. We want to say no to that roaring lion. And now, Jesus, we're asking you, you yourself, to set us apart that you would take your oil, the oil of the Holy Spirit, and pour it on us afresh. Please, God. So here's how we're going to end, guys. Instead, usually at the end, we bring the lights all the way up. We're going to actually bring the lights down. If you have children, <laughs> please go get your children. <laughs> But if you don't have children or you have children and you want to go down and get them and come back up, well, there's no ministry teams up here this morning. The altar is just to wait on God. If you need to go, we totally understand. What I'm asking this morning is that fellowship would happen outside the doors and that we would keep the sanctuary as a place of prayer. So, and then from there, you dismiss yourself whenever you want to. But I'm, I'm inviting you to seek God. If you want to come to the front, you can. If you... Whatever, you got it. Bless you.